Hello, everybody. Dr. Lonnie Stewart here from the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. Are you a physical therapy student about to start studying for the National Physical Therapy Examination? Or maybe you're a professor, a program director, or a clinical instructor who teaches DPT students preparing for the NPTE? Either way, we would recommend checking out our sponsor, NPTE Final Frontier, and the community they've built around preparing for and succeeding on the NPTE. That exam and the preparation that goes along with it can be long, tedious, difficult, and stress-inducing, but it doesn't have to be. NPTE Final Frontier has the tactics and resources to help address all of the usual barriers. They even have scholarships to help with NPTE study courses, FSBPT registration fees, and even research opportunities. And if that's not enough, they're even donating to the very first annual HET Podcast Scholarship to be awarded at the end of every year. Go to NPTEFF.com for all of the details and use code HET for 10% off all purchases. Links to both the NPTE Final Frontier and their scholarship options are available in the show notes. And now, let's get ready to learn. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, and I've got with me two absolute heroes of mine, Dr. Rick Siegel and Dr. Gail Jensen. Uh, I was joking a little bit earlier, like I get to fanboy out on this show, so it's pretty cool. I get to meet my heroes and my mentors and people I look up to and actually hang out with them and interview them for a while. So thank you guys so much for coming on the show. If you wouldn't mind, just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your academic journey and how it's led you to where you are today. Gail, why don't we start with you? I'm Gail Jensen. I'm at Creighton University, and I've, uh, you know, I've been around a long time. I, I would say that I started my career at Stanford University, graduate of an entry-level master's degree program, and that's where my, I did my PhD in education evaluation. So that that really set the stage, I think, for my career, both in physical therapy as well as my research career, the mentors I had both at Stanford and in PT, as well as my doctoral work with Lee Shulman. How I think about the importance of education research and learning and the profession and the role of physical therapists in teaching patients, I've never really wavered from that and only continued to build on that. I've been at other places, Temple University of Alabama, Birmingham, back to California, Samuel Merritt, and then I've been at Creighton here, University, close to 30 years to be part of the development of the first clinical doctoral program. And I'm from Minnesota. So that's 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 kind of a fast. Yeah, <laughs> the Cliff's Notes version. I love yeah, it. Yeah, and, and here at Creighton, I've had lots of opportunity in administration based on my doctoral work. So I've been an associate dean. I've been a dean. And I still have hold up vice provost title for learning and assessment. So that's me. And I have some clinical skills too. I love it. I love it. Rick, how about you? Tell us a little bit about your journey. My journey is a little bit different, but I've always loved to teach. Even as an undergraduate, I was allowed to teach at Ohio State in their physical therapy program, teach anatomy. I am a humanities and science person. So I was actually an Asian history major until I saw the light from because of advisors, history advisors. But I was always interested in what's the basis for what we do. And I remember I was being taught at, at Ohio State, sometimes instructors fumbled as to telling us, you know, helping us to understand why we were doing certain things. And so after being in practice for a while, I went back to graduate school to try to get down to the fundamental mechanisms for some of the stuff that we were doing. And that's really where my training was in basic science. But I've had this long interest in translation and being effective in educating students. And the journey getting me here for education research was 
I was one of the founders of ACAPT, and I was on the board eventually, and I was a liaison to help develop an education research task force to see how we could build our capacity and see where our weaknesses and strengths are and so forth. And that's where I started working closely with Gail and others. And I was drawn in by them, quite frankly, and realized that education research is really a passion for me. And because it really fills in the gap that I think really needs to be filled. And you'd be surprised. There's lots of opportunities for the future for people who are education researchers. And Gail, you'll love this. Just even had a conversation yesterday about a national program where you would think it's all about engineering and rehab science, but education was brought up by a basic scientist as being important for us to be able to do translation. So that's where my passion lies and why I think gamer is potentially so important. They're seeing the light. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Hey, I'm a convert too. I was an English major before I became a PT. So it was never a natural progression for me. And I didn't want to teach. I really didn't. I fought it for several years, despite having an ED and working through my ED. I just thought I was going to use it when I retired down by the beach somewhere, uh, teach at a community college after retirement and call it good. But then COVID hit and like got in the way. And I was like, well, I don't know if clinical is the way to go right now. So maybe academia is. And I tried it and Sure enough, I found that I really do love it. And listening to guys speak about educational research really has me interested again. And I found that the main thing that has been driving me is the transfer of knowledge. I love that. I love being able to tell a story or give an example that, that the light bulb moment goes off and, oh, they get it now. So I do love that transfer of knowledge, which, you know, I'm not a big research fan, but I'm becoming one, thankfully, because of educational research. and. Listening to you guys talk at ELC this year about Gamer really got me excited because I didn't even know this was something that existed until now. So tell us a little bit about what Gamer is and how that all came to be. So it really was born out of this task force, ACAP task force, really became influential. We wrote a paper, Gail leading the way, on you know perspective on what's you know the future, where opportunities and barriers and so forth. So with APTA and, the, and other groups in education, we held a retreat at APTA headquarters. I think that's where it was. And one of the things was, how do we try to build capacity for researchers? And I was at that table because I have been involved with something called ARIS, Enhancing Rehabilitation Research in the South, and TIGER, which are, were grant writing workshops for rehabilitation science. And that model, not that we're going to do it exactly the same, but the model of having some intensive experience in getting feedback and writing proposals and thinking about your career development caught fire at this retreat. The name Gamer actually came from Barb Connolly, who was at our table. But basically, it is a way to take people that have good ideas, have some training in education research, but are just trying to start formulating puzzles that might potentially get funding or at least be used to get more funding from within the institution so that proper experiments, so to speak, can be done. And so that's really where it's, it started. So this is a way to maybe build capacity. It's worked in rehab sciences. Now, of course, that's been going on for many years. So we're just getting it jump started. And so we held the first one in 2018 here at MUSC. And some of those people are doing fantastic things now from our first class. It made a difference. It made people think differently 
about the future. And Gail will laugh when I say this. Sometimes in education research, we know there's not as much money for funding as there would be from NIH, but I'm not a woe is me person. And so how do we turn that around? And what kind of opportunities are there? What kind of collaborations can there be made so we could advance the field? And it's, it's been enlightening to work with the mentors and these mentees who have fantastic ideas. But really, it was this task force and this retreat that really jump-started that we needed to get people better trained so they could actually be competitive for funding within and, with, and outside of their institution. Yeah, let me add a few comments there. Yeah, there, there's no question. It's an investment in people in, the, in really the career development of younger colleagues. And I think some of the secret sauce, the, the important ingredients are helping the, set the stage with how important the use of learning theories. You've got to be theoretically grounded to do. You can't just describe. That's the bane of existence in education research has been a one-shot this is my classroom. This is my program. So it, that, that work doesn't go very far. So the importance in educational research is that collaboration, that theoretical grounding. What are important problems or questions that need attention? And then how do you look at that more deeply? The other thing that we've been very fortunate is reaching outside of ourselves. And that's, we took a page from when we did our national study of excellence and innovation, and that was a collaborative team. We met with Lee Shulman when he was still at Carnegie because he had headed up the other studies of the professions of medicine and nursing, engineering, law, and clergy. And Lee said, hey, look, if you want to do education research, you're going to have to shop around to get money. But he said, the other thing you want to do is you want to connect with your other researchers in the field, in your field, because you need them in your corner. So Rick's in our corner. And so th th that made a lot of sense. So we've been able to bring in people, well-known people in medical education, and they have been so gracious and so generative with our community. Uh, it, it's been fantastic. We all learn in this process. It's amazing. And Gail said something that to me is really important, and it goes in a couple of ways is, and again, I'm coming from more of a clinical research, basic science background, but she mentions, oh, we had all these studies about my class, my school. And I think that we've been lacking, and I think it's really could be generative in us really developing a large cohort of people and really advancing fields, is almost thinking about them as multi-site clinical trials right. and really get people engaged across campuses and across disciplines. Within our profession, we have sub-disciplines, sub but also with speech and OT and others that really work closely with us. And it matters for us to do this as a team. Transdisciplinary, I guess, would be instead of even dis interdisciplinary, something that's really transdisciplinary. Yeah. 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 What, one of the things, this is just an example of, of how you need to get started and need that kind of development. All the work being done in interprofessional education, has it's beginning to move, but the initial start has been, oh, we have a survey. What can we do with this survey? It's like saying, oh, we have a piece of equipment. What question can we ask? And that self-report survey data doesn't get at the deeper meaning of what are you trying to understand here? What's problematic? So it's, it, it, to me, it's helping prime the pump for the education researchers in their ability to 
think and see things in, at a deeper level that, and then collaborate and think, what are the opportunities? I'm very fortunate. I work at a university that has five campuses across the country and speech and OT on campus with us. So I have those opportunities. I now just need to use them. I think and that, that's the next step. Because again, I'm new, right? I haven't done much research. I've just done- oh, When are you going to Gamer? Right. Are you going to Gamer? That's why we're here. <laughs> that's why yeah. we're here. I'm this is all. This is self-serving for Scott. Oh, okay. You realize that. Okay. Yeah, this is very selfish, but also, again, I want to bring more awareness to this. I want other people to know how it works and how to get involved because it's now definitely on my radar. But uh, tell us a little bit. You talked a little bit about funding and how that can be a little bit difficult with educational research. I've seen that and I haven't even really tried yet. So I know that's a barrier. What are some other barriers that educational research runs up against? Well, I think you. I'll start on the funding. I'm fond of saying, how many bake sales does it do you need to get education research off the ground? This is where collaboration is helpful, and this is where crafting, looking where are you going to start, where do you need seed money, how do you get pilot data, which is it was not. It's the same in any kind of research. So there are pockets of money in a lot of institutions through teaching learning centers or other kind of innovation funds. And sometimes, certainly done this in my career for our expert practice study, we coupled, we got money. Kay Shepard got some at Temple. I got some at Temple. You know, we, we put together internal seed money so that we could get pilot to go forward and get a, a grant from the foundation. So it is more difficult. The other thing is that you don't, you need money for people's time, which is expensive. It's not that you need a piece of equipment generally. You need the money for different kinds of things. So finding creative ways to to get some in-kind contribution, but also support. You do, it needs to be taken seriously. And that's another piece about, I, Rick can talk to this, about the gamer structure and that the correspondence that he has with the leadership of the person that's coming is really important. Yeah, I was actually, that was definitely, so obviously, you know, pockets of money are there and so forth, but I think a couple of key, key features is that many people who are getting involved in education research, when we think about basic science or clinical research these days, most people have gone for their PhD or some doctorate degree. They may or may not have done a postdoc, but many of them have done a postdoc. They're hired. They're, the prospect of them getting a, a fair amount of money is there. And it, there's a structure to that. People kind of understand that. Many people, at least in, in my experience and in our discussions, who are involved in education research, they got involved with it. They got more inspired to do it. They were already in a faculty position. And if you're already in a faculty position, you may or may not have the enough allocated or properly shaped time to get the scholarship done. And so one of the things is really trying to change the mindset of not only the faculty member, but of leadership within departments and programs. And there are some people that are really getting that for sure. That's what the session at ELC was about, to help structure the professional development for these faculty. And, you know, PT for many places makes money, you know, and it gets put in. And in some ways, there needs to be a little thought about how do we help make sure that our product, so to speak, is as good as possible. And education research is going to help make the program better. And that needs to be appreciated. And it needs to be appreciated for promotion and so forth. So all those things need to be lobbied. I'm fortunate to be at a place where that is appreciated. And we do get people promoted. And I've been able to get people some time for doing things that we would call education research. 
The other thing is, so for example, let's say there was a large clinical trial. Part of what you're going to be doing is you're going to be involved in patient education or ways to make sure that works really well. That's education research. And so you can be pairing with people, become the expert in your at your institution, that actually affords their broader funding. You may not be the PI of a big grant, but who cares? You get to do your education research, contribute, do scholarship, and really advance the field. So I think we need to be as creative as possible, maybe have some retreats about how what are some creative options. There's lots of, I think the horizons are actually good. Yeah, that's a sneaky good way to get involved in research because I think a lot of our job is patient education. So it's a neat way to tag along with that. Yeah, the other point that's, and I think we've certainly observed this in Gamer and we've had some spinoffs with pre-conference workshops called Mini Gamer, which Rick doesn't like. But it's just the name I don't like. <laughs> I know, it, but it's the need. We do need more for that kind of developmental trajectory. And to me, and this is even at my place, having conversations with the younger faculty who are clinical faculty, is you need to take a, we need to sit down. You need to have a professional development plan here. It's not just about I teach and I do some clinic. We, and how does that all fit together? And have you been more intentional about that? So we need to do a better job of helping develop the career view of our younger colleagues. That's very important. Yeah, I'm three years in and I'm just now starting a professional development plan. So I know, I know, I I mean, at first I was just thrown in there and get to get my feet wet and learn how to teach. And I needed that, but now I'm starting to get the hang of that. And now I can say, all right, I've got that part down. And now for a quick shout out to our newest sponsor, Varela Financial. If you're a physical therapist and you have student loan debt, you got to talk to these guys. What makes them unique is that they view financial planning like running hurdles on a track. And for PTs, the first hurdle many of us run into is student loan debt. Varela Financial will help you get over that hurdle. They not only take the time to explain to you which plans you individually qualify for and how those plans work, but they also take the time to show you what your individual case looks like mapped out within each option. So if you're looking for help on your student loan debt or any area of personal finances, we recommend working with them. I use Varela Financial personally, and they were able to help me lower my student loan repayment from about $1,800 a month down to about $135 per month simply by finding the right repayment plan that best fit me, my family, and our life goals. You can check them out at varelafinancial.com. Link is in the show notes if you need it for reference, and tell them the HET podcast crew sent you. And now back to the show. Now I've got all these other parts I got to figure out. Let's talk about Gamer. Let's talk about the program and the structure of it. What does it look like? What, how does somebody get involved from start to finish? Take us through that. Yeah. And, and, and I will say right up front that we have used the kind of tiger model to start out with. Is that the way it's going to be in a year or two? I think it's going to morph a bit. Right now, we're in the process of planning for the future. And planning for the future is okay. We can take a breath and maybe make some modifications to how we do some things. But the core of this is going to be one-on-one or two-on-two mentorship, something like that. So the process, basically the process starts that if you're somebody who has some ex- some experience, because if you don't, that's where mini gamer or whatever we want to call it really is an important thing because you start saying, oh, I've got some things to do before I go into something like Gamer. But is that you have a good idea 
that you have an idea of, of how you might want to get this work done? What's the an idea? Of what might be the theoretical grounding of what you're going to do? At least you think you have some idea. It's okay to find out at Gamer. Oh, no, you don't know. Gail will help you. But at least you're thinking in those ways. And it's something you're thinking about something that could be impactful. And so you'll apply and you'll talk about your experience and give a short proposal. Who might be potential mentors at your institution or close by or somebody you interact with? Because Gamer is something that is a moment in time. Not to say that we just drop you like a hot potato afterwards, because you can still, many people have interactions with us afterwards, long-standing interactions, but you apply. And if you've got a good idea, it makes sense. Your institution says they will support you a little bit financially, but more importantly, they want you to start and complete these projects. That kind of commitment that it's not a one-off, then you're good to go, pretty much that's it. And when you get here, we have some didactic sessions that are typically in the morning. And say didactic, more didactic discussion, they're both, where we'll talk about things like what's the hook and things like that in a proposal and logic models and so forth. But some things that will help you in grounding whatever you're going to do and to think about it logically. And then a lot of the day and into the evening is meeting with mentors and having one-on-one -on -one discussions and also taking time to think and write based on some feedback so that by the time you leave the workshop, that you have some direction about what are the next steps and have a much more clarity, much better clarity of what you're going to do. We also have a session where we talk about funding opportunities which we can continue to expand, which I think has been useful for people. And it includes having somebody speak that's more related to medical education because they you know, really are much more advanced than we've been in, in PT outside of people like Gail. And uh, so that's also helpful. It opens up people's eyes that, oh, because that also can give direction about what our next steps. Oh, I'm going to go for an AERA grant or something like that. And then when you're ready to leave, you write up a summary we call a home institution forum that relates to what happened and what are some of the goals and a time frame. And then I send that. This year was pretty easy, Gail, that I send that with a cover letter back to the institution. But, you know, I, I for example, have, you know, it was clear that for one person we had in the past, they did not have the time and it wasn't going to happen immediately. And, you know, we just wrote some ideas about how maybe restructuring their schedule without really reducing necessarily the teaching, if that was impossible, might give them blocks of time to actually get work done, because that's a major complaint that people have. So bottom line is you have to have a good idea. The idea needs to be potentially feasible. You have the support of your institution. You come here, you get some more grounding in the, on how to develop the background for your idea, the logic, and then in one-on-one -on -one intensive or two-on-one -on -one intensive because you have a primary and a secondary mentor, although anybody can, you can talk to anybody who's there, you fully develop your ideas and you may not walk away, unlikely to walk away with a full proposal, but you would have formulated what you need to do to go to the next steps and that your institution knows that. So they're going to be supportive of you continuing to work on this. I think that's kind of it in a nutshell, I think.
Yeah, I you know I think you can't underestimate. Here's a connection to theory. The that kind of what happens in a community of practice, a community coming together, because the interactions, both the intense feedback that you get from the mentors, but as well as the group. Mentors, right? That's true. Yeah. So we're all learning it, and that's why it's been great to have the folks like Steve Durning and Boss, two very well-known folks in medical education. They've been just terrific, and really, we've learned a lot from them. So I, I and then I back again to the. How you see your work, and we're clinicians at heart. We love we love spending time with people, and we're not very good about protecting our time. We're so focused on students, just like we're focused on patients. Rick's point about how do you set together your schedule to honor some of your time and get your work done, or get prepared, or read, or or find your own kind of community. The other thing that we're seeing is is gamer is creating new kinds of models. So this learning group idea that you have a lab group, that's been a spinoff from some of the gamer participants. So they've gone back to their institution and formed a lab group with the support of their leadership. How important the leader is back in your institution to support your development. Ricky, you can speak to this. Very powerful. Yeah, I think that that's, I'm incredibly impressed with this. And but it has also been associated with, if I think back to the ones that have been really successful, their leadership back at their institution gets it. And I think that's really critical and they value it. You know, it can be a pillar. You saw some of that at ELC. Those are great examples, and but they can happen in many places. People just need to value it and it needs to be higher leadership needs to understand that this is really important, even if it is that they, there are all sorts of pressures that we have in programs. We need to make money, enough money to survive, and so on and so forth. I'm a strong believer in that. There are many ways to meet that financial need, but you want the best way to do it is by having good products and by really advancing the field. And that way, everybody feels good and you galvanize people behind the effort. And I think education research is a great way to, to do that, to galvanize groups of faculty within and between institutions. It, and it also gives, it gives faculty voice. I, we've been working on a, our, a revision of our strategic plan, and our learning group made the point, a powerful one, to say it's always been that we support younger faculty to go to Tiger. And it's like, and we are going to support younger faculty to go to Gamer. We're going to do both, right? Yeah, I think one of the major takeaways there, obviously support of leadership, that, need, that needs to be there. But also, it seems like the network becomes important, too. Can you guys talk a little bit? And it sounds not even just within physical therapy, but outside of physical therapy, right? You go to Gamer, you have the experience, you collaborate with the people there, both mentors and mentees, and then it goes to the next step, taking that network that you built at Gamer, but then also the network that you meet outside of Gamer for your ideas or for whatever you may be working on. Networking seems to be a big portion of educational research here. I'm hearing that even beforehand with some of the ideas of how to like attach yourself to some studies. What do you guys have to say about networking when it comes to educational research? How do we look at that and view that? Everything happens because of relationships in this world. That's been my experience, whether it's funding, collaboration, how important relationships are. And I think what in Gamer is because of the mentors we have in our networks, we're not all in the same networks. That really, you can imagine the web. But the other thing I think is so important, and I think education researchers in other fields are 
quite open to my connection with Steve Durney was a few years ago. We had we I did a cold call email to him because I'd read his papers. And I, you know, I said, would you consider doing a keynote for a clinical reasoning symposium? And he goes, that'd be very interesting. Can we have a talk? And I said, oh my gosh, this guy's, you know, he's associate editor for academic medicine. He's an MD, PhD. He's been delightful. So reaching out, never be afraid to reach out to people whose work you admire or you read. People always like to be flattered and they're generally pretty gracious about their time. Yeah, I can attest to that. It worked with you guys. So, well, it's a very common theme. And sometimes you think, though, in basic science and clinical science, oh, they just know how to reach out to people. There are still people that are shy about it. The National Institute of Neurology and, and Stroke actually has a program to help junior faculty, postdocs and junior faculty, be able to start talking to NIH people about priorities and stuff like that. So, it's an, it is generally that way. And but I think that we have developed already, and we and I don't think we've done it on purpose. It happens that we have developed this connectivity of gamer alums. In fact, they have liked to have gathering. I mean, we had some of them talk the first night of gamer about their experience to give these new mentees some idea what the future might hold. And we know that there are places like Duke, for example, now has three people that have gone through, and uh, Colorado, I think, too, has three people that have gone through Gamer, and they're building cohorts. And I think Creighton has, what, two, I think, that have gone through. I mean, it's, it's, I think we're going to we're gonna think that we want to plant those kind of seeds that people, and that could start outside of Gamer, but where we get people really networking, because that's where you can develop some great ideas, too. We have two people that have gone through Gamer, and we put together for our Center for Faculty Excellence, our teaching and learning center. We're doing a workshop in a couple of weeks and we're limited to 15 people. And I know we're going to get 15 people across the health profession. So it's just a, you know, it's a model of what, it's got some of the elements, but it's just a half day, but there's a lot of interest. (laughs) And one of the light bulb moments that kind of went off for me at ELC was the involvement of students in educational research. Because we struggle sometimes with our campus having a residential and a flex program where they're not always on campus all the time, being able to give them research opportunities. And with a lot of the educational research, it may afford them that because it could just be Zoom meetings and going over data and stuff like that. So they could get involved, which then also down the line could help them with their National Student Honor Society commitments and things like that. They have to check boxes off and research is one of them. And if it's not an R1 research university where they're on campus all the time every day and have the opportunities, some of these hybrid programs could benefit from something in educational research. So I love that aspect of it too. But what direction do you guys see educational research going or what would you like to see ideally it look like in the future here? Well, I'm letting that Gail do that. She's the education researcher. I'll start. You know, when we did the perspective paper, we, which turned out to be a pretty good foundation and put forward a vision of where we need to go. And, and the importance of developing people is really important because that leads to more. And then the funding. But I think the profession is at a point where in the example I would say would be, what are we doing to really accelerate and transform education? So our national study came out. We had nine uh, action items, 22 recommendations. And part of those are carried forward. The pillars document, the vision document that was put out by the ELP, I think provides 
a bit of a blueprint or a roadmap along with our national study. What are these urgent areas that need attention? And to put a sharper point on that, if we're going to be serious about competency-based education and the development of EPAs as a looking at that learner continuum, then we need to have some structure and funding to do that in an intentional way. And there are other medicines done that pretty well with some pilot money. Nursing has already put forward a million dollars, $100,000 grants to pro, to institutions to look at various elements of the their competency domains. So I think the profession needs to take a serious look. And that'll be a real boost, I think, because you can see that's work that's grounded in where the profession needs to go. There can be collaboration. It needs to be sound work. Yeah, we put out a paper in a journal of PT education about here are some research questions around competency-based education that we should be thinking about. And uh, a lot of people who contributed to that have gone through game. So you can see the kind of connections. Yeah. For me, it's probably a little different than Gail, but I still really want implementation of research in practice, the good research. And I think that education research is a key element in this. And I think it's, and I'm not, this is the only, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. This is the only time I'm, I'll express real concern. I think that as we have, we've grown a lot, we have a lot of hybrid programs now and so forth. Our tuition is reasonably high and we have a lot of student debt and so forth that I think one of the things for the future is if we can show and implement, show what we do matters as clinically and have that implemented to make sure that we get the reimbursement, that we can use it for lobbying to get the reimbursement we need, then the salaries can be higher for practicing clinicians so that the student debt is not as big an issue. And I think it's crucial to the profession. And education research has got to be in the center of this. It's got to be the centerpiece of how we're going to work on this. I don't know exactly how the method of what we're going to do and the, the roadmap, but I think it's something that really needs to be seriously looked at. And I think it'd be really important for us at all aspects of our enterprise, from the educational programs, the clinical enterprise, and so forth. So I think, I hope to see that in the future. Yeah, no, I agree 100%, Rick. I think that we suffer from the kind of culture we have in the U.S. to going, what's evidence? What can we measure? You go back to how you understand how expert practice, how important the PT is part of the intervention, quite frankly. And yes, is it motivational interviewing? Well, it's listening to the patient. I follow the clinical reasoning literature pretty carefully, and there's a lot of talk about how important the context is. You hear somebody like Steve Durning, who spent his life studying clinical reasoning, and he's all he's really into, we need more qualitative methods here to understand. What's, so you're beginning to see that we know that we do something very powerful with patients and their ability to self-manage. And that's expertise. That's mastery. That's not this exercise. That's not this mobilization. Right. It's everything together. Yeah. I, and it's about movement. Yeah. We got to have that. Now we certainly have to have our confidence and not for sure. Yeah. I love that take on it. And I think looking back at a lot of the papers I've read that, that you guys have produced, even expertise and authority is what we should be striving for. And a lot of that comes with reflection and being able to think back on what went well, what didn't, how did we change it? How did we make improvements? 
And once we get that and figure it out, now we've got to go back and teach and educate that, hey, this is a good process that you guys need to be considering even now as students, right? You've got to reflect, you've got to go back. And that's what makes that difference, right? Between experts and novice clinicians is part of it is reflection and being able to go back. And I don't think students can see that yet, but we need to at least introduce them to that. That's going to be a big part of you striving toward mastery. And that comes with teaching. It goes back to how do we educate them on that? So. I love those takes. Gail and Rick, thank you so much for taking your time and for coming on the show and educating our audience as to the gamer process and the program. We have one final question that we ask every guest. And that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? And Gail, we'll start with you because it looks like the thinking cap is on. Ladies first. I I was going to suggest her. Well, I, you know, I can never get very far away from how important learning is. And to me, learning is what the learner does to self and how we facilitate that process. And I do not believe we do well by facilitating it through grades, because I think grades really interfere with that self-determination theory. We bring students, they're looking for right answers. I think we've got to do something to transform our educational system throughout that really does center on the learning and the learner as they progress and they are excited about that versus chasing grades. That's big time. And great grades are relatively new in the bigger picture. It's it's only been around for a hundred years or so, and they haven't done very well with those grades. It's been more of a problem than good, really. So yeah. You're going to have to work on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rick, how about you? Let's hear, let's hear your. Well, I think, I think respect of each other's ideas so that we can have this kind of open discussion that's about how do we do things best? How do we make this, you know, the best experience and how do we get the best impactful results? And we need to be driven by those kinds of thoughts. And there was, I went to a workshop once on leadership and the idea, the concept that we're talking about is really important. It should not be the money at the end of the trail, even though we do need to make money, obviously. But what are some of the ideas that we can make our enterprise as good as possible and we get to the same endpoint, but we are we have done better? So I think respect for ideas and people will help the educational enterprise come to its the best solutions, like getting rid of grades. Well and and, and impact having right. a bigger, better impact. I think Yeah, that, yeah, I think know. it's just so important. And get us all galvanized behind some of these good ideas. Yeah, I love it. Thank you guys so much again for your time and for coming on. Where can people find you and reach out to you if they have more questions or follow-up about educational research or about the Gamer program? I'm very easy. My email address is Siegel, S-E-G-A-L, at M-U-S-C dot E-D-U. Feel free to email me. Put something in the subject line so that it doesn't get caught as spam by our IT. I'd say the same. I'm Gail Jensen. At Creighton, no dot in between at Creighton.edu. And I'm all I'm on my email all the time. I don't tweet. Sorry. Go to Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn, but email is the way to get to me. Awesome. And we'll drop those email addresses in the show notes for everybody to reach out easily. Thank you again so much for your time and for everything you've done for the profession. I can't say how much I admire you guys and just love watching everything you do and following in your footsteps. So thank you so much for being north stars for uh, for some of us thank, thank you very you. much scott this is a great great program yeah take care well i hope that episode was entertaining as much as it was informational and educational 
If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, we ask you to please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. And please share out the episodes to those who you feel may be able to benefit from them. We also urge you to follow us on all social media platforms at HET Podcast and let us know what topics or experts you would like to hear from in future episodes. And just as a reminder, none of the information on today's show should be considered medical advice. It's simply infotainment or edutainment to help educate our audience. For medical advice, we always advise you to reach out to your preferred medical professionals, and we'll see you on the next show.